This is Father Aaron with another podcast. A little over a month ago, I preached a homily here about voting and our obligations to the state. And in that homily, I mentioned that the church has never been a proponent of democracy. The most major issue we have with democracy, or a republic for that matter, is that it places the determination of what is right and just into the hands of a majority, either a total majority or a majority of representatives. In either case, the rule of the majority determines what will and will not be considered good within a society. But of course, goodness and truth are not matters for discussion. God, who is truth itself, has revealed himself to us in his Son. And a government in the mind of God and in the mind of the Church is entrusted ultimately with the duty to promote, preserve, and enforce the law of God which is not subject to the passing trends and fashions of majority opinion. There is no updating of the law of God to make it get with the times. It is perennial, applicable to every time, place, and circumstance, and therefore ought to be unmoving, a foundation to any society. Truth doesn't change. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us, then, that when our Lord set out to establish the framework of his church, he did not establish it as a democracy. He didn't even grant it a collective body, a governing council or congress. No, he set as the sole leader and final judge over the entire body of his church, one man, Peter. Of course, Peter was no king. He was an apostle, the first of the apostles, but he served the one true king, Jesus Christ. And the same is true for all his successors. The pope is not a king, but is the servant of the one true King, Jesus Christ. And he is the servant of Jesus Christ in the same way as Peter. What then is the office of Peter? For that, we could look at our lesson from the prophet Isaiah. The prophet introduces us to an important figure in Jewish history, Shebna, the master of the palace. Shebna has offended the Lord and is being thrown out of his important office to be replaced by Eliakim. 
and the Lord promises Eliakim, He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on Eliakim's shoulder. When he opens, no one shall shut. When he shuts, no one shall open. I will fix him like a peg in a sure spot to be a place of honor for his family. What did it mean to be the master of the palace? Essentially, he was the key holder. Literally, he kept the keys of the palace. But this can be understood in a literal and a figurative meaning. On one hand, he was responsible for opening and closing the doors of the palace so that those should enter might come in and those who should not would stay outside. But in a figurative meaning, the master of the palace also had the ability to keep out those people he'd rather not present their issues before the king. Or he could arrange meetings of his friends to secure them audiences when the king would support their causes. The word of the master was as good as the king's word, because it was understood that he always worked according to the king's will. And because of this, to be named master of the palace was a sign of total confidence by the king. The king trusted that the master would have an understanding of the sort of persons he did and did not want inside, and the sort of issues he did and did not prioritize. And since he was a constant filter in and out of the palace, he had to be unwavering, never caving in to bribes or threats, or using his authority for his own gain, which is why God refers to Eliakim as a peg in a sure spot. His office is the unmovable pillar, which protects the intentions of the king and the good of the kingdom. This past Friday, I spent my evening standing on the sideline of a football game. We started back football this week at the school, and Coach Baker has told me time and time again that the most important position to him as a coach on the team is the center. The center will touch the ball on every play. He is responsible for defending the quarterback once he snaps the ball. Essentially, he has to be a peg in a sure spot, unmoving and exact in his trade. What does all this have to do with Peter? Our Lord, in addressing Peter, uses very particular terms. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, he says. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Our Lord entrusts to Peter the office of master of the palace of heaven, and sets him as the rock, as the foundation, as the peg in a sure spot for the church. Peter is the unmovable pillar around which all of the faith of the earth orbits. Our Lord as king entrusts to Peter his own authority, such that when Peter decrees to be true something on earth, it is true in heaven. That which is declared wicked on earth is declared wicked in heaven. But the core of this trust is that Peter acts not under his own authority or in his own name, but under God's, such that when Peter acts in the capacity of his office, it is God's words and not Peter's. Hiller Belloc said, The Catholic Church is an institution I am bound to hold divine. But for unbelievers, a proof of its divinity might be found in the fact that no merely human institution conducted with such knavish imbecility would have lasted a fortnight. The papal office is the only reason the Church has been able to outlast every kingdom and empire these past 2,000 years. The Pope's chief duty is to defend and protect the authentic teachings of Jesus Christ and to transmit them from one generation to the next, which he does with the divine assistance of the Holy Spirit and with the assurance from Christ that the faith of Peter will never falter from the truth. I have prayed for you, Peter, says the Lord, that your faith will not fail. The papal office is not a political position as much as the world would like to think it is. 
It is especially difficult for Americans to grasp because we live in a society where truth and goodness are determined by votes and printed out in several thousand pages of legislation. But Christ entrusted to the church the keys of heaven itself, entrusted them to a single person, whom we call his vicar, the vicar of Christ, the Pope, the one who on this earth stands in the place of God before God's holy people. Every time a new pope is chosen, the news around the world is that this sort of pope or that sort of pope will be elected. One will promote this party or that movement. But the church does not operate that way. God does not operate that way. Many people lately have asked me if I've seen the new movie, The Two Popes, what I think about it. I think it's a quaint film that poorly represents both the office of the papacy and the two men who have held that office in recent years. There are no parties in the church. There is no conservative stance. There is no progressive stance. All of those are worldly terms that don't apply to the church. In the church of God, there is only truth and error. Our Lord in today's gospel entrusts to Peter and his successors the singular duty to judge between truth and error and to teach us to bind and to loose, to open and to shut, to be the peg in a sure spot. We as Catholics should nurture a holy and ingenuous love of our Holy Father, the Pope. For in loving and respecting the teachings of the Vicar of Christ, we come to love Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life.